My teacher said, there are more walls in England than Berlin, Johnny. What were we to do in those crumbling acres? Die of boredom? To recreate ourselves, emerging from the chrysalis, all scarlet and turquoise as death's heads from chip plants, moths of the night. Not your clean-limbed cannon fodder for the drudgy nine-to-five. Sniffing glue instead of your Masonic brandies, we fell off the cogs of misfortune. Out to lunch in 501s. Hello everyone and welcome to uh, a new edition of In Conversation With. Uh, today I'm talking to Andrew Moore from uh, Manchester Metropolitan University, uh, the author of Magic Spaces, the cinema of Powell and Pressburger. But today we're not going to be talking about Powell and Pressburger, we're going to be talking about Derek Jarman. Uh, the occasion is a fabulous uh, exhibition uh, in Manchester called Protest, uh, and we've just come from seeing it, uh, and I want to talk about it. But first, I suppose I, I just want to talk about Jarman in general. So, you know, what, what has Jarman meant to you, and how has that changed over time? You know, when was the first moment you became conscious of Jarman? Yeah. I think, well, I th interestingly, I think it was... It was Derek the person and the film work at, at around about the same time. It was probably when Edward II was being released. And at that time, Derek was already a public face uh, and being interviewed, talking about his HIV status and was very much involved in gay politics. So for me, I was kind of belatedly limping out of a closet and Derek was one of the sort of signal figures in British queer culture at the time. In international Had you come across his films before on television, like Sebastian or The Last of England? Or what, what I remember is, and actually having, since the exhibition's been on in Manchester, talking to other gay people of a certain age, remembering The Pink Triangle on Channel 4, and remembering... When I was 18 and I got a job, I was able, for the first time, to buy a portable television, so we had more than one telly in the house. So I had a portable television in my bedroom, and I can remember sitting watching Sebastian in my bedroom, transfixed and terrified and astonished and aroused and all of those things at the same time by that happening. Uh, one of my early boyfriends had a VHS copy of Sebastian, and I used it as porn, because you know one of the things that we forget is you know, that these things weren't accessible, right? And actually, I thought it was so radical, you know, to see like these beautiful men naked, yeah. <laughs> having sex. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was images that were very, very hard to come by uh, and precious in their way. Um, but I suppose my trajectory is a bit different because the other thing I remember Jarman for, before I knew who he was, you know, Caravaggio was the first gay film I saw in a proper cinema and by that I mean I always say soft seats yeah it wasn't a community center it wasn't an avant-garde cinema yeah. yeah you know it had a mainstream release in Odeon Cineplex you know and you went to see it as if it were an ordinary film so there was a shock of seeing a gay film in those spaces in 1985 uh, I think the next film that I saw then was The Garden, and I think that was in Oregon. That was at a queer film festival mm -hmm. uh, that I went to in Oregon. Uh, it might be 91. It was, I remember seeing The Garden, and 
Paris is Burning. It was part of the same festival. And then, of course, I think before I even came to England, I, I you know, he was already publishing those diaries, you know, in some of the mm -hmm. books, and you know, and I was already like very much reading his work. And he, obviously, he was a leading figure in kind of AIDS activism uh, by that point. And then I think the last time I saw him, I think, was at the premiere of Blue, where, you know, he was very ill and he was in a wheelchair, and I think it was at the ICA, and surrounded by, by people in this kind of very sad moment of triumph. It had mm -hmm. an ambiance of that. It was a celebration that it was done, but also, like, you know, he wasn't long for this world. Uh, so that's kind of my experience of him. How has yours changed over time? I mean, what did you... You know, let's say, what did you think of him as a figure in English art or English cinema, or British art or British cinema, a decade ago versus now, or 20 years ago versus now? It, it's Looking back, I think when Derek was still around, so many of the films were so personal to him. It was I found it very hard to detach the films from his persona, uh -huh. and he was this charming, well-humoured, provocative political man and so that some of his charisma spilt over into the films and then when Derek passed and then there, was, there seemed to be a long while where I thought is there a danger that he's going to drift into the into the background and then um, there were documentaries that were made about him so he was still a figure and and then he seemed to shift in my mind from being Derek the filmmaker to eventually, 20 years later, Derek the tourist destination, because there were, I would think of Prospect Cottage, and I would think of Dungeness, and I would think of Modern Nature, and I would think of the garden, and all of those things around mm. him. So one of the really interesting things about the exhibition, and then I should say that in, in partnership with the exhibition, there's been a full retrospective of all the feature films at home in Manchester, has been revisiting the films. And I, I went back, I was a little bit wary, because I thought... Are they going to look a little bit stodgy? Are they going to? Is it something I want to revisit? And and actually, the really refreshing thing is they felt fresher and newer now than they did back in the 80s and the 90s. I'm so glad to hear that because you know, I think it depends so much on where you come from in relation to the work. And I was always a bit surprised and saddened by some of the response to Jarman that is very peculiar to British culture. It's all, almost as if, you know, he somehow committed like a double sin, you know, for being avant-garde and for being middle class, right? Like some people just can't forgive him for being both of those things. And yeah. I think, you know, that's absurd. That is what he is, <laughs> right? Like, but that's not only what he is. And I always found the works, you know, very um, stimulating, radical, moving. I remember seeing the angelic conversation on a big screen and to have those images, you know, with the sonnets, yeah, and Judy Dench reading the sonnets, it was just so hypnotic and beautiful and really transgressive because I think we forget now how having those words spoken in relation to men loving men and that it wasn't, you know, dirty or shameful or whatever, that it was these beautiful young men, you know, kind of making love as these poems were being read by Judy Dench. I, it was, to me, it was just so powerful, really. And, and powerful in an immersive way that was both like political, you know, and, and affective, yeah, kind of. Um, so how 
people can throw darts at that when you know it wasn't being made anywhere else in the world yeah it, it is being made yeah. by him mm-hmm. <laughs> right like yeah you know so i don't understand that i wonder if you could illuminate that a bit for me really well one thing that sprang to mind as you were talking there is that we we think of the films as being full of naked guys having sex mm. but when you watch them there there's, there's not a great deal of that and there's certainly the homoerotic in there and, and, and I guess a lot of that avant-garde, underground filmmaking tradition does spill over into queer porn and that kind of territory. But actually, a lot, a lot of Derek's work doesn't really interest itself in that too much. Um, and it, but he's also interested in tapping into a lot of other traditions. But I, the thing I find really fascinating is, yes, there's the transgressive elements... And that becomes very, very politically polarised with Thatcherism and with his HIV status. So he's, he's oppositional and provocative. But at the same time, he's deeply English and deeply traditional. Yes. And that's this... And re- I think that's a very interesting English tradition of, yes. of radicalism and traditionalism. They, they often go hand in hand, I think. Well, he's very interested in having a conversation with that tradition. So, I mean, so one of the things that came out you know, in this exhibition that we saw is he talks about Wyndham Lewis. Yeah, he talks about Shakespeare. He talks about... Britain, uh, Benjamin Britain. Yeah, Britain and, and Wilfred Piers, Owen, yes. And, and, and Wilfred Owen uh, and uh, Auden. Yeah, and so, you know, his, his, his conversation is peppered with references. Yeah, yeah, to all yeah I mean, he's really, he writes himself, or he is written into this queer cultural tradition which include and he will he will say with with a provocative glint in his eye he will assert the homosexuality of Michelangelo and William Shakespeare yes. and Kit Marlowe and some of those I would buy some of them I'm thinking I'm, I'm not too sure but yeah. but he will make that assertion and I think that's well, part of his job and part of his role to to kind of validate that tradition yeah he not only makes the assertion I mean I think in this film that we saw in the in the gallery he offers proof I, yes you know there's that citation or that image or yeah yeah um let's move on a little bit to the to the exhibition itself yeah and kind of you know from memory i'll try to kind of you know guide us chronologically take through. us on a tour yes uh, so let's begin with his early work what was your impression of the early work the there's a definite sense of derek the art student in there I think I mean we get work which is clearly modelled on Poussin or on uh, you can see the influence of the greats on that work as if he's trying to find a style and there's a beautiful self-portrait that he did when he was only 17 a gorgeous kind of piece of work Um, and I don't think you would I don't think you would immediately see that as having his distinctive personal style to me that seems to emerge later on as you get through the through the 70s and into the 1980s Um, but it's it's fascinating that he's 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 making the connections with other artists and he's quite happy to show off those connections it's not it's not a mark of shame that he's copying Busan it's a deliberate act that he's doing it's interesting though that for someone of his age and his generation, you know, the paintings are not surreal, they're not abstract, yeah, you don't see the influence of Picasso, yeah, it's not, yeah, yeah so all of the, you know, the great mid-century movements, yeah. he seems to bypass them. I think the greatest reference that I saw was really Hockney, 
Yes, yeah. I mean, it is one thing that he says in, in the various places in his writing and things that have been written about him. You think, well, he is um, of that generation, but, but pop art doesn't go anywhere near what he's doing. He's not interested in that whole Warhol style of New York painting. Although, actually, one of the things the exhibition here flags up is that, that the kind of warehouse collective process to art that Jarman had is actually very, very like what Warhol was doing in New York in terms of a community of practitioners. Mm. Um, but it's often said that you know when, when Hockney was doing pop art and facing, pointing towards California, Derek's going off to Avebury and making films of standing stones and, mm. and, and interested in landscape art. But I think there are paintings in the exhibition where you can clearly see him having a go at Hockney. Yeah. So I think he's, he, is, he is part of that modernist tradition in that early work. Okay, good. It's there. Um, one of the things that we also saw was uh, the film in the shadow of the sun. Yeah, that you mentioned you'd seen the whole thing. I was only able to see snippets. Yeah. You know, but, it was, but I was so impressed by, uh, you know, the, the pastel-y colors, you know, the nudes, the superimpositions. I mean, you know, what, uh, what, did, I, what did you see? Um, what, what I remember was the... Well, when I... Because it's one of these non-narrative films, what, where, where my mind went was trying to unpick this word that's often said about his filmmaking, which it is painterly. Mm. And I'm, I've never really felt that when that word's used, it's been interrogated very much and not really sure what it means, apart from the fact that, well, we know he was a painter as well. Mm. But I think in those, you can see him, he's kind of, he's pushing the photographic film image as far as he can, and he's distorting it, and mm. he's using superimposition, and it's all to do with pastel shades and slow motion and, um, and the passage of time, mm. but, but it's, not, it's not just representational, it's more to do with tone and feeling and feels very impressionistic. Mm. Okay, good, interesting. The other thing that I was very impressed by was the black paintings. Yes. Uh, which, you know, are, are really very erotic and playful <laughs> and dark. Yeah. So kind of, I had never seen them before, I don't think. No, I, mean, I hadn't seen those either. And it's... Um, where I've been thinking, having, I mean, it's about the eighth time I've been to see the exhibition since it opened in Manchester, because I could swing by and pop in and, and, and indulge in a bit of it, is that the, the, Hockney, the Hockney-esque landscapes are there, but they're, they're, there's no naked boys swimming in pools, and there's actually not a lot of the homoerotic going on. But I think you found more of the homoerotic in some of the earlier yes, paintings than I, I did. They, yeah. But they are there in the black paintings, and, and I think that the gallery is kind of singing them up as part of a, a homage to Caravaggio. Yes. And that, that they are clearly there, but that, that run of these sort of black and gold paintings that, I mean, that feature the male nude and centre on it entirely. Those are more than homoerotic. Yeah. I mean, they're really pornographic in this very joyous, playful way. It's all about huge penis ejaculating, and you know, I, I mean, I, yeah. I, you know, so. Because you're right before that when we think of Jarman, his films are much less explicit than you think. And maybe the reason why is because some very relatively chaste imagery in 1978 or 1985 had such a powerful sexual charge mm -hmm. on us, right? So we might be over-remembering the sexual component in them. 
But in these black paintings, I mean, you, you couldn't get more explicit. No, you know, it, no. It, it is really kind yeah. of... Yeah, but I think another dialogue that's going on in them, I think, is, I mean, because the, the, the gold looks like gold leaf, it kind of glitters and it's got this sheen to it, but they, there's a kind of, there's like a religiosity to them as if these are kind of church paintings, mm. and yet they are so thoroughly homoerotic, as say pornographic, that there's some kind of dialogue going on there with this whole homoerotic Christian imagery that he's kind of revels in, mm. which is interesting for a for a, a, a devout atheist as he was. He's still very aware that he had this an upbringing in the Church of England, and that he is he is aware of that long Western Christian tradition of art. Yes, he's yeah. aware of it, and, and he uses it. Um, I think the exhibition then takes us on to his work uh, for the stage. Yeah, both the opera, the ballet, uh, and then cinema. And um, what did you make of that? Did all, that alter your knowledge or, or change your mind about anything? The, th the thought that it provoked in me was that, that there he is, um, he's, he's got an he clearly had an established profile as an artist uh, when that theatre work began. But it's not that he tiptoes into fringe theatre. It's that his first gig is at Covent Garden for Frederick mm. Ashton. Mm. That he that there is clearly a net a London network of queer art and politics that allows him to move in those circles. Mm. That means he can get that mm. get that work mm. and then move on through that to the Rex Progress with Ken Russell and then into the into film mm. via Ken. Yes, I think what also impressed me is that um, it's very early. And he's very young. I think, I mean, some of the opera work is, what, mid-60s, I think? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the opera, the ballet is mid-60s. Uh, uh, um, you know, the work on the devils uh, uh, for Ken Russell is 71, right? So he's very young. He's in his 20s, isn't mm -hmm. he? Yeah. Uh, so that's quite impressive to be that young and to be getting commissions of such great responsibility. I mean, it is like the, you know, two of the major institutions in the country, one of the then major filmmakers. Yeah. Yeah. So but when I think of the kind of, when, when, when you're aware of the later work that Derek did with his own filmmaking, I then think of those sets that he does for the devils and I just think this is monumental. Yeah. It's almost too, it's too big for Derek. And I, from what I know, we didn't enjoy that experience particularly. And, and then everything he said about filmmaking afterwards was that basically the bigger the budget, the less fun it became, and he'd rather be doing it for next to nothing with his friends and, and always claimed to be the luckiest and most successful filmmaker because even if a film only cost X thousands to make, he always turned a profit, even if it was only 500 quid. I don't know. I mean, I remember reading, because I think he kept a diary of Caravaggio, if I'm not mistaken, I certainly remember reading the diary of Caravaggio, and you know so much of it was the money coming through, the money dropping. Yeah, that out, was the biggest. He hated the, the experience, I think, of making Caravaggio. Yeah. And it took a long, long time, and it was it was a big thirty-five mil project. That's right. So, so I don't know about the luck, but what's interesting to me is that he clearly had the opportunity of making a lot of money, yeah, and doing commercial work as a designer, as a costume designer, as a set designer, and chose not to, yeah, mm -hmm. because. You know, I think his work was so impressive on the Devils, and if I'm not mistaken, there's almost nothing after that, right? No. So it's a conscious decision to focus on his own work and, yeah. and to be poor, focusing on his own work. Yeah. yeah. 
which you know I think uh, uh, very admirable. And obviously, I think that that's where a lot of his own Super 8 films uh, uh, come out. Um, we do have some snippets of Super 8 cinema, uh, but I went to an exhibition at uh, you know one of the galleries. Uh, in Somerset House, uh, you know, King's mm -hmm. College. I forget what the gallery was called, but they had an exhibition of his complete Super 8 works. And I just found them so moving, yeah, like a document of queer life, yeah, in that period that exists almost nowhere else. And you got a real sense of, of the joy and the community and the sexiness and, you know, the um, artiness of it all, right? Yeah. And, like, and there's a kind of lightness of touch and almost a throwaway quality to them as well and a, a whole movie feel to them, which I just find is completely refreshing. And um, one of the early screenings at home cinema was a compilation of the shorts and James Mackay, who worked with Derek as producer, was, was there doing a, a Q&A afterwards. Um, and because and, he's the custodian of a lot of that Super 8 work. And I, the question I asked him was about the, the pace of those films and there's this distinctive kind of stop motion, very, very slow. Mm. And you could, you could easily call it dreamlike, but I don't know how apt that is. But I just asked him what, did Derek, what was Derek doing with time and speed and motion there. And I was hoping for some kind of profound philosophical or artistic <laughs> or aesthetic response. And James said, well, no, basically, Derek didn't really know how these cameras worked. He was just playing, and on the Super 8 camera had three settings. It had a fast one, a slow one, and a stop-motion one for, mm. for animation. So he was playing, he just hit on that as a kind of mistake and just felt like he liked it. Mm. And I, wanted, I was hoping for a better answer, but it was, it was kind of interesting in a way that it was just a, a playful experiment um, and, and slows down the image to this kind of pulsating um, pace. I mean, I think the playfulness says a lot about that. A lot of art making is playing, and, yeah. you know, playing with what your means offer. Yeah. Um, so I don't, I don't think, I mean, In I that, think that's a good answer. Do you remember that, uh, the lecture that Tilda Swinton gave, um, uh, which was pitched to the Edinburgh Film Festival, which was pitched as a letter to Derek, the long dead Derek, and she had a lovely line in it where she said there was always the whiff of the school play about your project. Uh -huh. I kind of love that. I just think it captures this sort of um, slightly rough and ready but naive hopefulness that the projects are going to work. I think there's that and, you know, the film that we saw projected, mm -hmm. you know, this documentary footage of him at the opening of a solo show in Glasgow. Yeah. Right? What you saw, I mean, I, I was really struck by that. First of all, because in my memory, he's always an old man in the sense that, you know, he's 20 years older than I. So yeah. I always thought of him as an old man. Plus, at the end, when he was old and ravaged by HIV and ill, yeah, obviously. And it was actually amazing to see that, you know, in this footage, he looks quite young. He's in his mid 40s, looks younger, is very sexy very charming yeah. right? and then he's both kind of very learned he's taking you through quotations of Plato, Shakespeare yeah, etc uh, really articulate you know and you were saying he's such a good teacher yeah 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 uh, he's charming and enthusiastic and yeah. you can't but listen to him and yeah. be persuaded by him even if he's saying things which you know of are, are really kind of politicized and partisan but you 
he wins me over with his charm all the time. So the element of the school play, the playfulness, mm -hmm. yeah, and then the pedagogy and the charm and the politics, almost they all come together in that little film, you know, in that footage. Yeah. I think I was very impressed by. We are now at the point where he wins the Miss Drag Queen of the Universe. Alternative Miss World, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and what did you make of that? Oh, I hadn't really given it a lot of thought. What I love about it is this notion that he was... Well, wasn't he, didn't he see it one year and he didn't win and then he got so competitive? It's a rare moment of utter competitiveness from Derek where he, he went the next year and he was adamant he was going to win. And I, can, and I love that little bit of film footage of just, just a really rare and precious archive of a bit of queer culture. I mean, I was very impressed with it because, you know, the, we now take it for granted that, you know, drag queens and drag and drag race and so on are, you know, a, a key central part of queer culture. It wasn't always the case. Yes, yeah. and uh, you know, I remember uh, uh, kind of being younger, and actually even being femi was a problem, much less being a drag queen. I think, you know, drag queens hung out at different bars yes. you know, than gay men, right, and so on. So actually for him to be so open to the very idea of drag and to be inclusive and to participate in it and so on, uh, maybe I'm more impressed than I should be, but actually I, I think I thought it was worth remarking on because, you know, if you were political in 1972, kind of about gay issues, you weren't necessarily you know, uh, political with or about or in association with drag. That's true. That really is interesting when you periodize it like that because there's so many conflicting ideas about the meaning of drag and the meaning of camp as well yes. and the meaning of effeminacy yes. in, that, in the early 70s where, where in a lot of that early wave of the gay pride movement those features are seen as kind of the bad, the bad odor of the closets and mm. the 50s and the 60s and as some kind of uh, that there's a, an adoration of natural masculinity going on and there's there's an aversion to camp and an av it, from the gay community mm. um, uh, and it's it's interesting that some voices a lot of them the more radical GLF voices are actually fairly quickly alert to the fact that now drag is drag flags up a lot of the issues with gender mm. that, that are far more encompassing than the gay pride movement. One of the things that I find so fascinating about his work in general and that was brought back home to me uh, in this exhibition again is that... I don't know if you remember, but um, Richard Dye wrote an essay called All the Sad Young Men, which mm -hmm. is you know, about the song, but it was also a way of characterizing you know, a particular type of gay culture yes. of the 60s, right? Because, you know, it was like, you know, all the sad young men waiting for something that they can't get. All the salmoneos with the big eyes. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yes. You know, um, and there's nothing sad about, there's no sadness in Jarman's work, actually. Even when you get to the dark paintings, like, you know, there's depression yes. or, you know, the future looking bleak or whatever. Yeah. But there's no sense that... There's no sense of sadness about being gay. Yeah, kind of yeah. the imagery is always like sexual, gorgeous, or there's anger, yeah, at oppression. Yes, that's true. But there's yes. no, oh, yeah, you don't aren't get any I of that. To be yes, mean? nature played me a nasty trick. Exactly. Nature threw me a curveball. You don't get any of that kind yeah. of language from Derek at all. 
Um, I mean, I don't... You also don't get an awful lot of card-carrying gay pride. I think it's just... He just personalises it, and he just is confident in his sexuality I, I by think, the time that he's a public figure, and he just embodies it. I think there is quite a lot of gay pride, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, the lack of shame in that period is in itself a gay pride. Mm -hmm. You know, all those huge yeah, parks, well all the yes, yeah. St. Sebastian's, and mm -hmm. isn't it... I mean, that is a kind of activist stance, yeah. Um, and, you know, there's certainly no apology, and there's no sadness. You know, there's anger, uh, and, you know, I mean, some of the later paintings, they are quite dark and angry, mm -hmm. and they're full of red and black, and, yeah. But there's no, you know, that longing, exquisite sadness, where actually it seems that, like, you know, part of a kind of a pleasure in being gay was also in drinking too heavily of the sadness. Yes, yes, that kind of, of yes, the whiff of misery. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, that's just that. What, where, where my mind went as you were saying that, which I think is it's flashing forward some distance, but when we think of Derek as the, as the, the public embodiment of, of men with AIDS um, and, and the AIDS-inflected or AIDS-directed work to, in his late period, and, and even the writing in the diaries, that actually there's there's very little self pity in there. There's yeah. there's actually quite a lot of um, of of really quite funny material about the the awkward bodily incontinences of being not a well man. And he makes it quite funny in the diaries. And he just takes he just takes it as as a um, uh, a fact of life that he has to deal with, and he can't do anything about it. And there's there's some really quite if you look back at Smiling in Slow Motion and all those kind of late diaries, there are moments when he's, you know, having, having, he's been caught short in a lift in an art gallery and just squatting down and having a shit because he's got no option because yes. he's a not well man. Yes. And he just says, can't do anything about it. Yes. And I think that's really refreshing, I think. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a way of, of eschewing shame from, from chronic or fatal e uh, disease. Oh. Yes. Which maybe is born out of his um, experience of gay pride. He's kind of translating that pride into a, um, not optimistic, but a kind of just embracing what life throws at him. I wondered, this is a curveball, but I, I, I kind of, I wondered how much a certain class has to do with that and a certain kind of um, not posh, but, you know... <laughs> Uh, you know when people say, oh, I went to a public school, but really it was a very, like, one in the provinces, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, that's, that, well, Derek that, would say that, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, you're taught this discipline, you're taught this outlook, you know, you're taught this worldview and religion and so on, and it's very kind of commonsensical, and it's, it's quite disciplined, mm -hmm. yes, and it's also you've made your bed, now lie in it, accept what... Right, yes. I do see that kind of intelligent and intentional kind of pragmatism. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of that is due to class and education. That's interesting, yeah, that he is... I mean, I'm sure some of it is the fact of being buoyed up by a, a class confidence. That, that when, De when we can say that Derek turned his back on great wealth that might have been available to him had he followed a commercial film design career or however great that might have been it would have certainly made him more comfortable than he was but I doubt he ever suffered from poverty and starvation in the way that 
people from another class did. No. Um, that he was there was always a a bohemianism that was kind of kind of buoyed up by some class confidence and just enough money to get by. There was an, I had a really interesting discussion with some friends when we went to see the screening of Last of England because I had quietly suggested that if, if, right, if, if I wanted to pick at something about Derek's oeuvre which might be troubling it might be the fact that it's a very white community that he's, that he's centred around even though he's living in London in the 70s and the 80s it is and then you think well, well alright there are exceptions Elizabeth Welsh singing at the end of The Tempest uh, but she's a fetishised black cabaret star in that and yet when you so I, I was just wondering I was needling away wondering if there was something about his his whiteness and class but if you look at The Last of England there are moments in there where he which I think are quite self-reflexive and he's aware of his father's position in the RAF his father being positioned in Pakistan, that he is, in some ways, through that heritage, a child of empire, sure. and that he is he is fully aware of it, and he's, there's a self-indictment in there in Last of England that I think he's, you know, when he throws in Land of Hope and Glory, it on the one hand it feels like a bit of a sort of blunt propagandizing irony when he when you see the devastated England that he's put in the film, but I think there is something about him questioning his own class position and his background sure. in there. And I if you look at that footage from the 1940s in there, where the whole movie footage, where he's this adorable little three, four-year-old boy, and you look at his mother, and you see his mother is clearly yeah. a daughter of empire. But I also think we mustn't use contemporary categories, you know, and try to kind of squish them into mm -hmm. the past. Because, you know, I mean, I think... You know, so so what if in 1968, you know, there's not a single black person at those parties? I mean, you know, maybe he didn't know any, maybe he hadn't come across any. You know, maybe the black men that were in Notting Hill who were gay were like too oppressed by the closet to, you know, conjoin yeah, or, with or those just larger move, just movements. moving around different networks in, yeah. the, in the city. Yeah, I think you know. What's interesting to me is not where you start off, but where you arrive. And I, I remember Isaac Julian telling me, you know, how much he admired uh, 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 Jarman, how helpful yeah. Jarman mm -hmm. had been to him. I, as soon as there was a kind of a black politics uh, and sexuality and so on, that kind of conjoined or intersected yeah. with him and with his worldview, he was for it and as supportive and so on as he could be. So I think, you know, yeah, the fact that you don't see any in those mid-60s or early 70s home movies, I, which I'm not sure that you don't, actually. It might be a, a minority. But then what do you expect? I mean, where did you see them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, was, it felt like a kind of, a, a sort of needling kind of line to explore and, and, then, and then happened to see Last of England and realised that it's a film that does kind of engage with the British Empire, sure. with those images of... of the Albert Memorial and things yes. like that, uh, but it's, it, it didn't strike me as so much of an issue once I kind of thought it through. I mean, I think it's very interesting because, you know, um, I think one of the one of my uh, reservations, critiques about a lot of English period culture, about a lot of English culture at this period, is how insular. I was going to say provincial. You know, though obviously 
it's hard to say provincial when you know you just had an empire right <laughs> yeah. and everything is like Rajasthan and South Africa and whatever so uh, provincial is the wrong word but there's an insularity to it and a kind of a lack of engagement with the world at large except for America which becomes a kind of fetish yes yes yeah and you see that in Germany yeah that obviously America is like um, a, a, a yearning, a draw. He goes there. I remember yes, that, reading that, that early trip to Fire Island had, was a, a seminal exactly. moment in his young boy's life. And yeah. then he falls in love with some Canadian and yeah. goes to Calgary, and you know, so yeah, so that's interesting. Um, but then I also think it's interesting that there is a kind of insularity in that his frame of reference is always English, right? And yet, of course, he is a European of that period. He is always taking trips to France and Italy, and yeah, yeah and that yes, becomes and are, a kind yeah, of... And there are references, you know, Eisenstein gets a reference in yeah. the films, you know, he does have this wider European mindset, which, which I guess is born out of that, that kind of artistic network that he's part of, which is, is less parochial. Yes. I mean, I, I, you know, it's just a, a random thought, really, because um, I think he is engaged with his world, yeah, and his world as he knows it, and it's very impressive. And I think certainly, you know, one of I had seen, I think the Barbican did an, a, an exhibition of his paintings just immediately after his death, which were all these AIDS paintings, yeah, mm -hmm. of anger and, you know, faggot, yeah, AIDS illness, metaphor, whatever. Um, and they're very powerful and I'm, I've, I've never forgotten them, but I'm not sure I like them. Like some of them are in really super bright colors, yeah. Uh, we get a few examples of them yeah. uh, in this exhibition. Um, and my overall impression is, you know, that I love him more and more and I appreciate him yeah. more and more. I mean, what is yours? Much the same, actually. I did, I mean, I. I wondered if I would find it, a lot of the stuff, overly polemical and, and even perhaps dated and perhaps returning to some of the films, I would find them a little bit stodgy and my experience has been completely the opposite and that's partly because the exhibition gives, just shows what a polymath he was. I mean, when you think of the, the range of influences, that he is a very an exceptionally significant artist. Mm. Um, working in so many different media. I mean, we've got that, that early work which just references so much of European art history and then the, the, the artistic trends of the 60s and 70s. We've got the theatre work, we've got the pop, all of the pop video work. Mm. Um, and then we've got his own, from that moment of Jordan's Dance, which is being screened in the gallery, we've got the pointing forward to his own films, then we've got the black paintings, we've got him as a gardener, we've got him as a writer. Mm. It's, it's just breathtaking, the, 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 the variety of work that he's doing. And I think for me, in terms of both queer cultures in England and English culture in general, you know, he is as significant a figure as you know, uh, people like Andy Warhol, uh, more so, I think, than someone like Keith Haring. Uh, and yet, why isn't he appreciated on that level here, do you think? Because he isn't. He's not. And I mean, I, I mean, 
having because I live in Manchester and I've seen the exhibition so much and been to the whole retrospective, we I kind of feel ah this is a great a great return to Derek and there's this there's going to be a huge resurgence. But of course, most people haven't seen that exhibition. Um, Though, I don't know. I mean, I, I one of the wonderful things about seeing this exhibition is you're just witness to people's love and joy, right, and understanding of that work. I mean, you know. One of the things is just to overhear conversations, right? Or to have people nod at watching him saying things, Yes, right? yes. And I every mean, time I've been to the exhibition, conversations have been happening with other people. Yeah. And, and I was actually, I've been really touched by the number of like, the young people, young artists I know, young queer people who've been to the exhibition, some who didn't know who Derek was. And I found something, something that sparks their imagination in the work. It's so interesting. And that actually in some ways he's a very contemporary figure because he's because he because we can position him as a bohemian outsider, he's available for all of us to to, to work with and bounce off. Yes. But he's also queer. Yeah. And he's also yeah. resistant. He's queer avant la lettre, so to speak. <laughs> right. Uh, and he's political. Uh, and the things that he was interested in and obsessed by and worked through are things that are now kind of standard to young people. You know, maybe kind of more difficult, you know, for people of his own generation or even the generation that came after, like us, uh, to accept. Do you mean in terms of the a playful articulacy with identity politics? Well, but I think that is definitely there. The lack uh, of shame, yes. the inclusiveness, the politics, yeah, I think all of that, the playfulness, yeah, the cross-medial, yeah, yes, that's of, very the combination yes, yeah. of pop culture and high culture, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and the pedagogic dimension, the, the act activist pedag pedagogic, yeah, activism is always a kind of pedagogy, right? Like, yeah, you think, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think all of that is like kind of mother's milk to young people in a way that it maybe wasn't, you know, to older generations yeah there's been I'm just thinking of some of the reactions in the film the cinema audiences that I've been experiencing at, at home as the seasons progressed and, and actually I think one was um, at the end of Jubilee which I have to say that even though I've kind of academically and intellectually admired Jubilee I've never responded to it emotionally because it's it's got this rough edge to it which has often left me a bit cold yes. but at that screening which was I mean you get a, f a full cinema audience because Jubilee of course attracts the, the, the German punks. fans yeah. and it, and the music crowd so in Manchester that's kind of more than one cinema full yes. so it was fully sold out big cinema screening and and was just being lapped up but I'd forgotten that at the end of Jubilee uh, John Dee and Elizabeth I walk along the clifftops and disappear into the distance and the credits roll but as the credits roll all you've got is the crash of waves and seagulls and because it's one of those low budget films so the credits are really really long because everybody's done something for nothing so it takes five minutes for the credits to roll the full audience just sat in silence listening to seagulls for about five minutes in rapt amazement, and it was absolutely beautiful. I couldn't be happier in a way, you know. I, I kind of, um, 
I think it deserves it, and I think it's only the beginning. I mean, I think his work will be mined and returned to and uh, read in different yeah. ways. I mean, when I think of, it's interesting to think of Derek in the future. I mean, one of the, I guess one of the big investments has been in Prospect Cottage since um, Collins died in 2018. That that's now a trust, and it's gonna the cottage is going to be available for artists to use and to yes. live in. So that's a, that kind of beautiful moment there that Derek would just. I don't know. That interests so me less, to be honest. Because right. I think you, you could see the commercial logic in that, right? Prospect right, College is good for the region. You know, it's kind of like a site of pilgrimage and so on. It's a tourist site. Yeah, there's lots right, of people yes. who can make money out of that. So fair enough. Uh, I mean, I think what interests me is his work. Yeah. Yeah. But also his life. Yeah. And and the moral choices that he made. That's a beautiful way you're putting it, yes, his moral choices, I like that. But, um, I mean, one of, the, one of the criticisms I heard said about the, the, about the exhibition is that it, to some people, it didn't feel very queer, it didn't feel very urgent, and Derek was relatively absent from it because you look in all of the artwork, mm. and it felt a bit institutionalised and reverential. So some friends of mine did stage an intervention Right. Um, called uh, A Minute's Violence for Derek Jarman um, in which they um, they all just went in without permission uh, there was about eight of them and they'd each prepared or had different pieces of writing that were manifestos or just angry rants about queer politics and at a particular moment on a Saturday afternoon they just formed a circle facing outwards and at a moment they all started ranting for 60 seconds reading their stuff out and it was a beautiful moment in the gallery and my friend Lee Baxter who records every great queer moment in Manchester filmed it and it was an, a moment of intervention in the gallery to, to kind of queer up the space a bit and make it a bit contemporary and the, uh, the poor people who worked in the gallery were really quite unnerved by this and were animated that they, they didn't have permission for it and were, were a little bit put out by it but a little bit of that film footage kind of went viral on social media and Maria Balshaw, who used to run the, the City Art Gallery, but who now runs the Tate in London, found it and asked permission to use that bit of film because she was giving a lecture somewhere and she wanted to, she wanted to talk about the disrupting the gallery space. And I thought that's great that the exhibition has still prompted some people to do a cheeky punk intervention. And, try, and take ownership of it and turn it into something else. Mm. Um, and I thought that's, that's nice, that it's not, it's not turning them into a, uh, a museum piece. or a, it, It's suggesting that he is still part of a, an angry politics of today. He's still alive and relevant. Yes, yeah. Though I must say it surprises me that people didn't see it as queer enough, you know, because... That's what it's all about in the, in the exhibition. I mean, you know, those cocks coming are like, I mean, if that's not queer, you know, or, yeah. or the AIDS painting, if that's not yeah. protest or the films that we saw. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I guess coming from, if, if you were coming from a queer oppositional perspective, then the, the fact of a major funded exhibition inside a, 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 an institutional organization like an art gallery might feel like it's robbing the art of some of its potential to provoke well I suppose so they wanted to return some of that okay yeah uh, I mean it sounds fab yeah. and I support it <laughs> but 
I mean, I think that's so obvious in the work uh, and actually in the curation, you know, in the way that it moves yeah. like you know, across time yeah. and the way that it shows all of the work uh, together. So I'm a bit surprised that people thought an intervention was needed, but very glad of the intervention yeah, itself. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, is there any kind of last word that you'd like to say, something that we might have forgotten to discuss? That you think is the one thing that I'd want to say is that on Saturday, which is the last day of the exhibition, I'm welling up even talking about it, is that um, the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence have proposed and they are going to canonise David Hoyle, who is Manchester's greatest queer star and one of the great queer performers of our generation, I think. Um, and this is partly in emulation of Derek Jarman, and I believe Derek was the last... British person to be canonised by the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, who do have quite an active chapter or chapel mm -hmm. or whatever they call it. Canonisation is featured in the exhibition. Yes, so it's going to be a march through the city centre from the gay village where, where um, David Hoyle will be somehow through the magic of the um, of the ceremony will be rendered into Saint Derek of the Avant Garde, Fabulous. and then and then we all adjourn to the gay village for sherry afterwards. <laughs> and that seems like a great thing to happen because David is very much a living part of a very radical and oppositional theatre cabaret culture. Mm. Uh, and, and I think it just keeps that work alive. Okay, fantastic. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Andrew Moore. <laughs> thank you, Jose, for asking me.